Welcome to the East Traumacast. This program was brought to you by the Educational Resources Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Now, on to the TraumaCast. I'm Lauren Dudas, a trauma and acute care surgeon from West Virginia University in Morgantown, West Virginia. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing a new production from the East Educational Resources Committee in the arena. And with me, I have the three creators and producers. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Jeremy Levin. I'm a trauma surgeon at Indianapolis at Methodist Hospital. I'm Mike Radomsky. I'm a trauma and acute care surgeon at uh, Ohio Health Grant Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. And hey, everybody, I am Sean Murley, and I'm a critical care fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. So why don't you guys start out by just telling us what In the Arena is and what we can expect from what you're going to be talking about. The East In the Arena podcast is really meant to highlight specific trauma centers that do something very unique in their practice, whether that's with our trauma patients, our EGS patients, or our surgical critical care patients. We dive into something that uh, is unique and we really find out why they do it. But my personal favorite is that we really look at how they do it. They get down into the nitty gritty details of the steps involved in actually making those practices happen. Yeah. Going along with that is we get to really hear the story of the surgeon or the provider involved and how they evolved over the course of whatever thing they're doing in their center. Really, their stories woven out every topic we talk about, and you follow them along over the course of their journey, you know, as they go over things. And my viewpoint on it is, is that it actually provides a roadmap or framework for other institutions to be able to implement some of these other practices that that are at the centers that we're highlighting at their own institution. So it sounds like compared to CareerCast or TraumaCast or the other existing East publications. This is not trying to generalize practice patterns. This is trying to delve into what some specific patterns are in order for you to be able to generalize it to your institution if it's applicable. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Great summary, Lauren. Nail on the head. (laughs) All right. So where did the name in the arena come from? Well, that's all Jeremy. There is this quote from Theodore Roosevelt that I learned in college that always stuck with me. And And it's a famous one. I'm sure many people know it. Um, But when I started my trauma fellowship, I was a bit intimidated. Uh, I came from a smaller hospital um, that Mike knows all too well. And we we were a level one trauma center. We were busy on our own, right? But we were not the high volume trauma center that other really major trauma centers are. So uh, I was a bit intimidated. And every day when I would walk into my hospital, I would just kind of recite the man in the arena mantra. Um, And it's a Theodore Roosevelt quote where it's essentially saying like the critic doesn't matter. The pundit doesn't matter. The people sitting in the stands don't matter. What matters is the person down in the arena doing what they're doing, fighting a fight, the decisions they're making because the full weight of what they're doing is on them. And it kind of released the anxiety I had walking in that, okay, I'm just going to show up. I'm going to do a good job. I'm going to make the tough decisions and I'm going to push forward. And so when we were kind of coming up with the idea for this podcast, the idea that everyone we're talking to makes a similar kind of statement in their own right, that they're showing up to do the difficult thing um, and hearing their story and how what they do in the arena matters and learning what they do uh, 
kind of informed the title of the podcast. That's a really interesting story. I like that because all of our arenas may be very, very different. <laughs> they are different. It's uh, I, I'm generally not one for embarrassing details, and I've, I've, that's an embarrassing detail about myself, but it's also true. Imagine you like humming to yourself as you walk into work. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very beautiful story, Jeremy. That is very heartfelt. Oh, shut up. <laughs> I want everybody to know that Jeremy knows that quote by heart. <laughs> He's playing it off like he doesn't. <laughs> That's definitely not true. It's definitely not. I could not recite it to you. I may have it hanging up in my office, though. I will be honest. Well, I think all of our listeners are going to be so excited to hear about some of the topics. I know you can't spill everything, but can you tell us what some of the things we can look forward to are in the next coming months? Yeah, sure. I think we can certainly spill the beans on our very first episode, which will be right after this mini interview. Uh, we're actually going to be talking about CT scans at Vanderbilt and how they expedite their patient to the CT scan, through the CT scan, and then up to their final destination. And it's about all of the little processes that have been developed over the course of three decades, you know, from trial and error and gradual improvements, and uh, how we can kind of spread those to other facilities as well. Uh, in the future, things to look forward to are Reboa and uh, police drop-offs for our trauma patients. And I won't spoil any more. Are these going to be mostly trauma center topics or cover the whole realm of acute care surgeons? We cover a broad range of different topics. There is a lot of trauma in there, but there's a lot of things that are, I would say, trauma and trauma center adjacent um, that you may not expect to be woven into the practice of what we do for any of our patient populations. Um, but are, um, and they're a manifest of just the diverse set of people that make up the trauma community. But yeah, we have trauma, we're going to have EGS, critical care, burn. It's going to be a long process over time, but we hope to hit all the major pillars that make up the kind of East member contingent. And I think that it's important that we not just always stress the medical aspect of it, uh, but we'll be touching on wide interests that uh are present within the East membership as well. So things like palliative care and integrating that type of care with uh, our patient population uh, is something that we also will touch on. Any other ways that this will differ from any of the other podcasts? TraumaCast, I think, you know, when I was a resident, TraumaCast came out with Bob Aksarani and it became this amazing resource for learning what the, the newest data says or going over literature or talking with the experts in the field about a topic. I think StoryCast and CareerCast talk more about the practitioner, but not with as much granularity. Certainly StoryCast does, but not CareerCast. That's more of like your career, the things like promotion or finding a fellowship. In the arena is, I think, in many ways, a synthesis between the TraumaCast and the StoryCast. It's more specific about topics we don't necessarily talk about, or at least take them from a different vantage point than we necessarily discuss. And it's much more about the provider's viewpoint, like getting into that shop talk about the X, Y, and Z of how you do a thing, why you do a thing, what makes you different about how you do a thing, as opposed to, you know, let's talk about the most recent study about that thing you do. Let's, let's talk about the actual guts of a trauma center, of an EGS service, of an ICU, and get into why we do the things that we do. And how you implemented them as well. So tell me about what kind of guests you'll have on your podcast and how might this be different than some of the other ones we've listened to in the past? We want to have guests on that are representative of the trauma community. So that means people from diverse backgrounds, 
people from diverse centers, big and small centers, people with the backstories that are not, you know, the backstories of what trauma surgeons were 30 or 40 years ago. We want guests that are representative of trauma surgeons today and the and the the trauma community and the East community of today. And that means talking to guests from all over the place. Lastly, how often can we anticipate a new in the arena? Once a month. Well, I don't think we should make our listeners wait any longer. Let's hear the first episode of In the Arena. Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of East in the Arena, a place where we talk to East members about the unique things they do, why they do them, and how. My name is Sean Murley, and along with my co-hosts, Jeremy Levin and Mike Radomski, we are so excited to present this project that's been in the making for almost a year. This podcast is a product of the Educational Resources Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. So Jeremy, you actually know our first guest, don't you? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Now, I have to start with a bit of a full disclosure. I was your fellow at Vanderbilt University Medical Center for a time, and if there's one thing you should walk away from today's podcast with, it is this. Dr. Jill Streams knows resuscitation. You could say she is a resuscitationist, a damn good one, and takes the art of the craft seriously. Today, we get to talk with her about how she arrived to her resuscitation paradigm, why Vanderbilt treats trauma patients the way it does, and what the hell is she doing with her patients in CAT scanner? I gotta say, Jeremy, I had a great time chatting with Jill. Not only is she a badass trauma surgeon, but is also a really down-to-earth human being. We started off talking about how she's a huge live music junkie. I actually just went to my first show again after COVID. So I went and saw Jack White recently. I grew up in Seattle in the 90s, so I am like grunge to the nth degree. One of my pastimes is following Pearl Jam and Eddie Vedder around. She once flew to Portugal for 51 hours just to see Eddie Vedder. I took call, drove down to Chicago, took a red eye with my husband to Lisbon, um, and then saw the show. I don't know, I think I was awake for like 48 of the 51 hours or something, um, and then flew home and took call. So my discussion with Jill was about CT scans at her institution, but it really got me thinking about how trauma systems are formed. Do you ever feel like when Bandy was being set up or like when Denver Health was being set up, it was just a couple of guys sat around, decided this is what they want to do in the trauma system. And and like everything was easy and like, oh, yeah, this is how we're (laughs) going to do it. And that's it. Yeah, I I, I, like I think about it like that in my head. I, I don't think that's actually what happened. Well, why not? I mean, before something gets set up, there's no institutional memory, no institutional inertia. Yeah. Maybe that's how it started. But what I really gathered from my discussion with Jill is that every system is designed very intentionally, using whatever local resources they have and employing them in the best possible way. We're going to talk a lot about how Vanderbilt designed their system to make it easy for patients to get through the CT scanner. But before we do, let's hear a little bit about Dr. Jill Streams, a trauma surgeon at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I went to Vanderbilt for medical school. I grew up on the West Coast, so moving to Nashville was sort of like put all my stuff in a U-Haul and, and come to Vanderbilt. She initially had no aspirations of surgery. I'm the first doctor in my family. No one else is medical. And so I thought I wanted to be a forensic pathologist. Um, I don't know why. About three weeks into medical school, one of the surgery residents was teaching in our anatomy class, and he was taking moonlighting call on trauma and told us that we could come hang out with him for the night. She was curious, 
So she went to check it out. By my standards now, it was like a totally relaxed night. A gentleman was was shot in the abdomen and was taken to the operating room. And you know, again, by my standards now as a trauma surgeon, it was a very unremarkable case. I think they took some bowel out. And that's about it. But she thought it was the coolest thing she had ever seen. That's exactly what I need to do. And so really from that moment on, knew I was going to do surgery. When it came time to match, trauma wasn't in particular on my radar. And so I matched at Northwestern and moved to Chicago and got just unbelievable trauma training. I like being able to operate all over. I like, you know, the variety of which we do. Sometimes you're in the neck, sometimes you're in the chest. But Northwestern isn't a particularly high volume trauma center. So I kind of knew I needed to go somewhere else for trauma fellowship. Having been at Vanderbilt, she knew that was where she wanted to go for trauma training. That was my story. I, as a third year, shadowed Bob Sarani when he came to GW. My first call as a third year medical student was on trauma. And it was some, I think a stab wound or something like that. And some small bat had to be cut out. And I was like, oh yeah, this is it. It was, I had the same exact thing. There's something weird about trauma like that. I remember when Mike was like totally into trauma. I bet Mike knows the case too. Butcher knife to the heart. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that was, I peaked. <laughs> I peaked as a third year resident. Yeah. I remember you were always going to do trauma, by the way. That was a, that was a memorable case. And about that case. I had the flu and I was, I masked, I was in the hospital mask that day. Cause I had the flu. Cause I didn't want to miss a day of my sub eye on the trauma service. Cause I was like, oh, I was all about trauma. Little Jeremy Levin excited about trauma. <laughs> I feel like that's the story for, so many trauma surgeons, it's like a drug, like you take your first hit and then all of a sudden you're addicted to it. One of the things I think about Vanderbilt that not only drew me back, but I think we really teach well is resuscitation. She considers herself a self-proclaimed resuscitationist. I like that word, resuscitationist. It's so good. I am very interested in research and optimization of both pre-hospital and sort of like the initial 15 minutes of resuscitation. Because, you know, you ask any trauma surgeon or any emergency medicine doc, you know, where can you make the most difference? It, it's those 15 minutes. There's the 95% of patients that no matter what you do, they're either going to be fine or they're not going to be fine. Your ability to affect them is going to be very small. And really what they need is a trauma system in a trauma center, they don't need a trauma surgeon. And then you have that 5% of patients or that that 1% of patients where that 15 minutes is the make or break Yeah. with the fleetingly little amount of information you have. You got to make some major, aggressive, definitive decision on what to do. And so like resuscitation is, is such a great, I actually have never heard someone referred to as that. I think it it's so on the money. Yeah, it's a great term. So I was actually listening to another podcast recently and they described the golden hour. We know the golden hour. But they also used the term the platinum 10 minutes, which I thought was really awesome. Yeah, I've never actually heard that before. That was the first time I had heard platinum 10 minutes as well. There is no place I think that does it better than us. And again, I'm biased, but we do it differently than other places. So when people come to Vanderbilt to watch their resuscitations, the first thing people ask is, You guys don't get EMS report. Well, they do, but not right away. So we do ABCs on the stretcher and then move over and repeat our ABCs. And we're starting our resuscitation and we get through a few steps 
before and get our manual blood pressure before we get report and get our x-rays. I think it's hard for people to understand uh, why we do it that way. And I know it's really hard for our pre-hospital providers who maybe come from other systems to understand, but you know, that first two minutes is so crucial for me of understanding where my patient is. Pre-hospital, you know, has an unbelievable amount of information that's super important, but we're trying to do these things in parallel. And I think that can be one of the, one of the breakpoints and how Vanderbilt really does it differently than other places. So what are your guys' thoughts on primary and secondary surveys? Physical exam is pretty meaningless in the trauma bay, right? I don't care that there's bruising somewhere. That's why a tertiary exists. I care about the things that need my immediate intervention Mm. or the things that if the patient starts acting like they're not supposed to, that I know, oh, there's a deformity there in the leg. Now they're hypotensive. They had a negative fast, they had negative chest x-ray, negative pelvis. They're bleeding in the leg, right? Like I care about the things I should care about. I don't care about the two centimeter lack that we're going to come back and close. The first thing to understand about Vanderbilt trauma resuscitation is that it's a mature system. So we have people working at the top of their game from the medics who are in our bay to, you know, our residents, to our EM faculty, to, you know, to trauma. And all of the decisions and things that happen in the resuscitation are done very purposefully and have evolved over the course of 30 years to function extremely well. They have a saying down at Vandy. We say, do the things we do, don't do the things we don't do. At this point, we moved on to talking about the CAT scanner and why people have trepidation with the donut of death. I I mean, donut of truth. (laughs) Some of the rhetoric around CT scanning and trauma, I think, comes from people who haven't seen a system work well. So, of course, in their mind, CT is a death tube because they've never seen it work well. They've never seen it take seven minutes to get a full traumagram, and then you're on your way. And a lot of the rhetoric, I think, comes around that CT is being used to avoid operating. And I can tell you, I love operating more than anything, I think, except my children and my husband. Um, You know, I, I love to operate. Do you guys hear that a lot? that the CT is being used to avoid operating? It's the shift of mindset that's happened over the last decade or 20 years of an exploratory laparotomy was both a diagnostic and interventional or resuscitative tool. Now, instead of when we don't know what's going on, our first inkling isn't to go to the operating room, it's to go to CT scan so that we can learn what's going on before we take the patient to the operating room. Whereas I think the older mindset is that you don't know what's going on, be in the operating room to find out what's going on. We all make heuristics when we're in the trauma bay. We all all do a rule of thumbs because we work with inaccurate data or, or probably more accurately, we're getting a bunch of data in real time that's not necessarily quantified, right? It's how the patient looks, what they do. If you're the older school mindset and you're like, well, we're just gonna go straight to the OR, that is always a perfectly reasonable and valid thing. If that's what you're thinking you do, you do it. But I think often what happens in the reverse is we know that there are plenty of times those same patients could have been taken a CAT scan and information from those CAT scans could be useful, including like you have like maybe a bad liver. I would contend that patient's probably better served in IR. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you just hit the nail on the head. That's exactly how Jill and her team use the CT scan. The CT is not a tool to get out of operating or using it to refine our surgical approach 
or refine our treatment approach. You know, if they have a grade three spleen or, you know, a grade four spleen, that has got a little bit of extra, do they really need a laparotomy and a splenectomy? I mean, you can do it that way. And I love a trauma spleen. Like it's one of my favorite operations and it's a great operation for our, our fellows and residents. But, you know, is that the best thing for the patient when they can get a coil embolization the goal is not to avoid the operating room. It's the goal is to get the best amount of information so that I can do the best surgical operation. If your CT is a death tube, you're doing it wrong, right? Your system isn't designed to take sick patients through the CT scanner. And that may not be your fault, right? You know, there are differences in the CT scanners in their ability to obtain scans quickly. There's differences in training on the CT techs, and then there's sort of differences in who's going with the patient. So at Vandy, they've designed their system, optimized processes, and shifted their mindset to get people to and through the CT scanner quickly. Let's talk about how they do this. When a trauma patient comes in, they get their standard resuscitation, and then... The decision-making tree is, you know, are they going straight to the OR or are they going to the CT scanner? At most trauma centers, that decision is based on hemodynamics and, quote, stability. And one of the things that Vanderbilt does very differently is what our definition of stability is. We are very comfortable taking someone who is metastable to the CT scanner. Metastable. It's the perfect word to describe someone who is profoundly hypotensive, but is in the process of being resuscitated. And in other institutions, they would finish that resuscitation and get them the patient maybe to a higher point before they go off to the CT scanner. The second huge difference is the number of people that are going with the patient. So it's not that we're sending one intern off to the CT room with the patient. A typical group going with the patient to the CT scanner includes the trauma junior, the trauma senior, the trauma fellow, the trauma attending, uh, at least one medic and usually two and then respiratory therapy if needed. That's a lot different than sending, you know, one nurse with a patient to a CAT scan that's hemodynamically unstable. We're all going to the CT scanner and our resuscitation is continuing while we're obtaining images. That cadre of people going with the patient is doable if you have dedicated trauma teams, both at daytime and nights and weekends. Where I am at now in Indianapolis, we don't have a trauma fellow. And our resident team covers trauma, EGS, and some other general surgery consults. So often, once the trauma is done, I'm going with the sick patient to the scanner. I don't leave their side. But that amount of people don't go. The ability to do that and to go with that amount of team, often it's there are many times it's just me and a nurse in the scanner. And if things start getting out of control, you very quickly realize how limited two hands are. We say a lot at Vanderbilt, you know, resuscitation is a concept, not a location. The resuscitation starts in the trauma bay and really honestly started pre-hospital. We continued resuscitating in the trauma bay and then we're continuing that process through the CT scanner. It's truly a complete mindset shift to move resuscitation from being a location to being an activity that can take place anywhere throughout the patient's path in their admission. While most other shops would put patients on propofol and fentanyl drips, Vandy has a slightly different approach to medications. At Vanderbilt, we don't put people on drips because it's equipment that has to get lugged around and changed from IV pole to IV pole. So they're doing push dose on their sedatives, paralytics, and all their other medications. So to facilitate that, all of our medics and nurses that come with us have 
uh, a little box that they check out from the pharmacy. They call it a tea pack. And it's got the commonly used meds. It's got Versed, fentanyl, Zofran, you know, a few other things. If we want something special, we have to call for it. But pretty much everything in that tea pack will get us through the CT scanner without having to go out to a Pixis or call out and get meds. I had forgotten, frankly, how much of a luxury that is. Because now in a center where we do do drips and spaghettification is real. <laughs> And I don't know how it happens, and it just happens, right? Lines are just the toddlers of the hospital. They just cause a mess, and they have no idea how they did it. It's just taking time to like undo all that stuff, wasting minutes upon minutes. If you're talking about being efficient and being effective, shaving off dead time like that matters. And I forgot how much of a luxury it is to have that tea pack and just be like, yeah, I give Versed, yeah, I give Fentanyl, give them Zofran, we need Haldol. And it's boom, boom, boom. The one thing I don't like about the lines is they always dislodge the IVs. So after we talked about medications, naturally I had to ask about blood products. All of our blood products are on pressure bags, you know, to get them in quickly. I have to tell you, I think my favorite piece of resuscitative equipment ever devised is the pressure bag. Yes. I love pressure bags. They are my favorite thing. Yes. I feel like the speed is always just right. And so um, we're not taking a level one transfuser or a Belmont with us to the CT scanner. The Belmont I find can be abused. You can give too much product too quickly. Agree to agree. I think all level ones should be thrown into the world's largest trash compactor, (laughs) compacted, and then sent to the sun. Again, the more equipment you have and accoutrement around your patient, the harder it is to move from one location to another. If they're going with products, they've already been started in the bay when they're finishing up. Um, but in the CT scanner, if we need product, we can start product very quickly. We'll order that as the trauma attending, you know, we see their pressures starting to downtrend or, or something like that. You know, we'll call out for more product and the chargers is bringing it down and the, and the medics are, you know, super fast at getting it started. So we've talked about getting the patient to the scanner quickly, but what about getting the patient through the scanner quickly? First and foremost is RCT scanner is a Siemens Somatome Force. Sounds fancy. And different CT scans systems have different protocols. So if you go to a Philips or GE, the actual software to obtain a CT scan is different. And so the techs have to protocol and you know, draw their little boxes to obtain the scans differently for different systems. I just liked how she said that. Draw their little boxes <laughs> like they're three-year-olds <laughs> drawing rectangles around body parts. But it's true, those damn boxes, man. Every time I see them draw the box, I, I, it doesn't need to be perfect. Just get me the picture. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, all the clicks that the, the techs have to do, and they have to do them, the software will not allow them to move faster than they're moving. And you could tell, like techs of 30 years experience, they're going as fast as humanly possible. If there are any entrepreneurial listeners out there, come up with a way to have an AI system draw these boxes for us, please. I've been saying that for years. It seems like it's a little box you draw. Why can't a computer do it? <laughs> They take a scalp. There's a skull. The skull's surrounded by black shit. Put a box around it. Oh, my God. Our techs are very good at getting things done quickly. And so a typical CT traumagram, which would include a CT of the head, a CT of the C-spine, those are non-con, and then a chest, abdomen, pelvis with T and L spine recons, 
At Vandy, that takes seven to eight minutes. And that's from the time they hit the door, not the time we start protocoling. You know, we're going to roll in, get the patient over onto the CT gantry, and then they're going to start protocoling and doing all of their things. My biggest takeaway from this episode was that a system operates in the way in which it was designed to. Jill told me that it took over three decades of development and improvement to optimize the process of rapidly getting CT scans for their sick trauma patients. But beyond just the process, it takes a mindset and culture shift to create change for the better. Let's summarize the ways in which Jill and her team have honed the process of getting to CT. One. Bandy trauma is comfortable taking patients in the active process of resuscitation to the scanner. Resuscitation is a concept, not a location. Two, the entire trauma team goes with the patient, allowing for continued close monitoring and treatment. We're all going to the CT scanner and our resuscitation is continuing while we're obtaining images. Three, they created a medication box from the pharmacy, it's called a pack that contains all the necessary medications, including sedatives, paralytics, antiemetics, and others. They avoid drips as much as possible to minimize extra equipment needed in the CT scanner. Four, blood products are placed on pressure bags for hands-free infusion. And five, the CT software has been optimized to have the patient on the gantry for no more than eight minutes. The team can get in, scan the patient, and get out to the OR, IR, or ICU very quickly. Well, that's us. If you have any ideas on topics for the In The Arena podcast or guest suggestions, please contact us at eastinthearena at gmail.com. And remember, if you want to check out more In The Arena episodes or other East products, including the TraumaCast and CareerCast, visit east.org or wherever fine podcasts are found. East In The Arena is a product of the Educational Resources Committee and created by Jeremy Levin, Sean Murley, and Mike Radomski. This episode was produced by me, Sean Murley, and I hope you enjoyed it. Intro and outro music were produced by Matt Holsmacher. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode.